Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man that wants everyone to know while you're out celebrating the spooky season, he's calling it Rocktober. It's Dale. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's right. Rocktober, baby. Yeah, rock and roll, man. That's right. Rock it out. Yeah, heck with that spooky stuff. He's rocking out. Yeah, I love it. Spooky stuff, rocking out. It's all good. It's all, it's all good, man. It is all good. What's going on, dude? Oh, man, it's fair time. Fair weather, too. It is. Nice, nice, nice. Oh, yeah, I'm loving this sure weather. You love it. You're going to really love this weekend when it gets cold. Oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, but we want to keep uh, folks down in Florida from Hurricane Ian, keep them folks in your prayers and help them on their way to recovery and getting through all this mess, man. Yeah, I'm telling you, they, they some of them got really hit hard and some of them got really lucky. It's like across the street, you're okay, and over here is just, just devastation. It's crazy. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Stuff. Yeah, it come up through here, but we were pretty fortunate. We didn't get nothing just out a, of it. Good bit of rain. Yeah, yeah, not not even it's not flooding type. Just a good soaking rain, really. Yeah, no wind or anything. So we were pretty fortunate. Very, in that. very fortunate. Yep. You got any good shout outs? Anything you want to mention, dude? We do, man. I'd like to give a shout out to our to newest Patreons, uh, Heather Trap and Jennifer Orcutt. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining our Patreon. Thank you so much, and I'm going to get some new content put up there. You better. You yeah. guys uh, hit us up with your address so we can send you some some goodies. Yes, please do. All you first guys are going to get hooked up pretty well. Yeah. We really appreciate you. More yeah. you know. Also, I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, Joshua Norwood, who just kind of basically said, you guys are awesome. Really appreciate you listening, dude. Yep. Thanks and so much. Just say something about him. He sent me a message, and I think he had a typo in it, and he mentioned love, but oh, Yeah, but... <laughs> But he, he come back again with another message that I just don't. I'm not in love with you. I just love your podcast. <laughs> oh, don't break Donnie's heart like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, yeah. And a quick shout out to uh, Dale Elmore. Uh, we appreciate you rocking that sticker on the back of your car, man. I saw it at the fair, and that's a great way to share the show and get the word out. And uh, you guys check out his uh, YouTube channel. Just look up uh, Dale from Shelby. That Dale from Shelby. That's Dale Elmore. Yeah. I need to ask Dale from Shelby where that slaughterhouse is that he done in that one video. Yeah, I need to I need to find that out. Well, I'm sure he'll let you know. Yeah, he listens every uh, Monday morning. Yep, he's a quite good fan. Yeah, we appreciate him. So that's good, quite good. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's a damn good one. How about yeah, that? Yeah, very good fan. Yeah, you go. we appreciate him. <laughs> All right, nothing else, dude. No, I don't think so. Except for uh, you guys get ready. About time uh, get you some hoodies and stuff. We'll definitely have to order me one. I think you said something about today. Yeah, I'm gonna have to order me a new hoodie. I think. Yeah. Yeah, mine's about wore out. Get you something from the store page. Get you a T-shirt, a hoodie, mug, yeah. sticker, something cool. Whatever you need. Yeah, we got it. We got you. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please go over there and rate and review. Write something in the box. That's right. Click that five star. I promise you, it helps. It helps more than anything. And if you guys know people who want to listen to podcasts but are, don't really know a lot about it, shoot them over to our YouTube channel. Where all our shows are there. They're just uh, it's just audio, but they can catch them there. It's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to get caught up on that. We're about three episodes behind on YouTube. Well, you know, they got to have a time to get caught up. Yeah. So we'll get that and get it back up and running after the fair. I'm kind of busy right now. So. I get it, man. But we'll get it. Soon as go. All right. Let's well, get no, this going. There's nothing else. We're going to get going on this episode, man. Let's do it. And today we are talking about Jesse and Barbara Anderson. Yeah, Miss Barbara. Yep. We're going up to uh, Wisconsin today, aren't we? Yes, we are. All righty. For the most part of the this story. Yeah. But we will start with Jesse Anderson, and he was born on May the 3rd of 1957 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Right. But he grew up in southern Illinois, the city of Alton. Yeah, Alton. Yeah. He was raised in a middle-class family along with two sisters. 
Karen, and Deborah. All right. And Jesse was remembered by a high school friend who said he had a short temper and was prone to fly off the handle. You don't think so? Yeah, I think he was. <laughs> After studying this case, yeah, I think he was very prone to fly off the handle. Yeah. And just saying, you know, if things didn't go as well, that's the way he was. It's kind of his weird highway, I Pretty think. Pretty much, kind yeah. Kind of guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's another school friend, remember him as being very smart, and but not very outgoing. Imagine that. Yeah. Now, on May the 25th of 1970, Jesse was 13 years old, and his father, Levi, died of a heart attack. His mother, Mary, remarried a short time after that to a guy named Willard Forsey. Willard. Willard, yeah. And he had children of his own who Jesse had a pretty bad relationship with they didn't get along too well it was a little negative wasn't it yes and it was on one occasion when jesse was young he got into a fight with his stepfather and beat him so bad that he was actually taken to the hospital damn he beat up willard yeah Mm -mm. yeah (laughs) but jesse went on to graduate from alton high school in 1975 and after that he left town without ever returning probably a good thing yeah it was a good thing yeah he needed to get out of there now, in the fall of that same year, he enrolled in Knox College, where he studied pre-med and military science and became a member of the ROTC program. And at that time, he was also employed as a cook at Happy Joe's Pizza. Oh, that's a perfect place for him. Yeah. <laughs> and this restaurant was owned by Jim McGraw in Galesburg, Illinois. All right. And in June of 1977, his scholarship for school ran out. And he was forced to leave college. And since his mother couldn't afford it at that point. Well, you know, when you beat the shit out of your stepfather, mom probably ain't really giving you a whole lot of money. Probably not. It'll kind of dampen that relationship a bit. But after that, his boss at the Happy Joe's Pizza offered him a job as a manager at another Happy Joe's that he owned in Clinton, Iowa. And Jesse accepted this job. And he moved in with McGraw and attended Clinton Junior College for a while. And in 1978, he met and fell in love with the sister of a co-worker. Her name was Deborah Ann Reese. And eventually, McGraw found out Jesse was stealing money from the cash register. Yeah, that ain't good. Well, he actually suspected it. Well, he was pretty smooth at it because, you know, he was like, he was the guy who counted the money every night, right? Yep. And uh, it just seemed, you know, at a restaurant, it hardly ever comes up perfect. You always like either somebody gives you a few extras, you know, a dollar or a couple quarters or whatever, and, or you hand out a little more. But his came out perfect every night. Yeah. I mean, zero, zero above, zero below. Perfect. Every night. Every night. So he started, uh, the guy who owned the place started to... Uh, He's like, hmm, I don't know about this. So he, he started, he like put like a $65 extra in the restaurant one night. And guess what? It still came up even. <laughs> it came up even. So he knew he was stealing money. Yeah. Right. I think he'd done that on several occasions mm-hmm. just to see what would happen. Right. But yeah, but the store owner, pizza store owner, confronted him on this. And he gave Jesse the opportunity to take a polygraph test. Yeah. Or... Be fired. Be fired. Yeah, yeah. So he said, "Hell, I wouldn't steal from you, and I'll just quit." So he took the termination. Yeah. And when he left the McGraw home, Jesse snatched a shotgun and some sporting equipment from the house. So now he's stealing his money. Now he's stealing the shotgun. Yeah. 
But McGraw was only able to recover the shotgun. And despite all this, Jesse managed to avoid some criminal charges. And later, he denied the allegations of theft to his uh, girlfriend, Deborah. Oh, I'm sure. Now, following his termination, he was employed at another Clinton restaurant. And in the late 1970s and 80s, he also worked several years at the Chicago Northwestern Railroad car shop. And later, he moved to Chicago. Hmm. And in 1979, despite the warnings of her parents and brother that he was deceitful, Deborah married Jesse. Yeah, yep. smooth operator. Oh, yeah, very smooth. And in 1981 and 82, the couple went to live in Glen Ellen. This is a community located about 15 miles west of Chicago. Right. Now, their only son, John William, was born April of 1983. And according to Deborah, Jesse turned into lying possessive and controlling he was also manipulative and a very demanding husband Mm -hmm. and he became critical about her weight yeah beats trash yep already but she said he was never physically abusive to her we didn't have to he just beaten her mentally yeah and deborah even said that while she was pregnant she had a strong feeling that jesse was having an extramarital affair And she added that on several occasions, Jesse would brag about beating a man with a baseball bat. And he also confessed to her that while he was in high school, he had committed a series of burglaries to a friend. Right. And had gotten away with them. Yeah, so so far he's getting away with everything, you notice. He's yeah. stealing from the guy, didn't get in trouble. He's doing this stuff to her, didn't, he ain't really getting in trouble for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here we go already. But now, while he was married, it seemed like Jesse was sort of getting on the straight and narrow he attended elmhurst college and received a bachelor's degree in business administration in 1984 and that same year he filed for divorce yeah but he he was kind of shady about it because he waited till his wife and him had went on vacation somewhere yeah and then he just did it out of the blue yeah it was like what the hell and he was citing extreme and repeated mental cruelty on her part yeah well he's right he just had it the wrong way yeah, and he claimed that Deborah refused to communicate with him or socialize with his business acquaintances and that she had failed to support his employment. Good Lord. Yeah, but Deborah won the custody battle, and he had to pay child support for a time. Yeah, I know for a while he was saying he wasn't going to pay her nothing. He'd just kill her instead of paying it, but mm. she probably just took what she got and left. She probably, you know, just didn't even care if he paid her or not, just get away from his dude. Yeah. Now, Deborah remarried, and her new husband adopted their son. So I guess uh, Jesse, he gave up custody rights to him, signed mm-hmm. over privileges. So he son. wouldn't have to pay child support. Yeah. He's trash, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But their divorce was final in 1985, and he would later claim that he didn't have enough contact with his son as he would have liked. Well, you gave him away. Yeah. So he's, we're sort of painting a picture of Jesse here now. Mm-hmm. It's pretty too, <laughs> what What's more to come. Yeah. Now, Jesse met his second wife. Her name was Barbara Ellen Lynch in 1983 in Chicago. And this is while he was studying business and actually still married to Deborah. Yeah. So, so he was already seeing her while he was still married. Yeah, so uh, Deborah was right about him having an extramarital yeah. affair. Now you can see where all that mental problem come in while he's telling lies. Yeah. But they married on March the 30th of 1985. And uh, according to some of their friends, Jesse wanted this perfect marriage and a perfect relationship. He just trying to, I guess, on the outside looking in, he wanted everything to be just perfect. Yeah. 
just like a, I guess, postcard marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he said, my way or the highway. Yep. Now, one of Barbara's brothers, his name was Thomas Lynch, and he was a policeman, and he decided to investigate his new brother-in-law and his past. Smart dude. Mm-hmm. And when he did, he discovered Jesse had applied to work for the FBI, but was turned down for his past record. Hmm. Yeah, and he said um, Jesse's first wife, Deborah, said that when she was interviewed by the FBI concerning Jesse's application, she told the interviewer of the mental abuse she had suffered, and she thought Jesse would have made have not made a good federal agent because he was emotionally unstable. Well, if he knew that, he would have went off. Yeah, he would have. It would have killed him. Yeah. Well, she didn't think he could interact well with others, such as fellow agents or, you know, the public. Right, because he's so controlled. Mm-hmm. And she also feared that such a job could give him to access to, like, numerous files. and he could, give him a lot of powers. Yeah, and that, he, could use, to that head. he could use this to, I guess, Dig up any information or get anything over on anybody. Yeah. Whatever he wanted to do, he feels to harass somebody or just find out stuff about, you know, confidential stuff about people. To benefit himself. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Now, for his part, Jesse claimed he was told by the Bureau that they were not hiring. <laughs> they weren't hiring white males anyway. Yeah. And because of... Affirmative uh, action. Affirmative action. That's what yeah. they told him. Yeah. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. They <laughs> probably just kind of sidestepped this fella. Yeah. Which, so far, they're the only smart ones in the story. Yeah, the FBI saw this coming a mile away. Yeah. The Milwaukee police were never able to corroborate during the investigation. Lynch also believed Jesse had served a 30-day jail sentence for battery. And Jesse had also applied for the CIA, but was told they were not hiring at the time. Hmm. So, yeah, that's probably what he's saying, They but they, they checked him out pretty good, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, Jesse and Barbara, they relocated to Wisconsin in 1986 1987 mm-hmm. and later settled in the cedarburg area I don't and, know where that is. and there they you know exactly where that's at i do not oh you don't know i got a lot of wisconsin beeps but i don't know where cedarburg is okay i should look it up now while they were there they gave birth to three kids jessica lauren Catherine marie and michael patrick like i said they no one she one did all the work yes <laughs> barbara who was formerly employed as a stockbroker became a full-time homemaker while Jesse took on a job as a part-time commercial salesman. And this was for Lakeside Oil Company. Yeah, he's making big bucks doing that, though. Yeah, he was bringing down about 300000 a year, I think. Yeah, well, in today's, today's money, yeah. Yeah, today's money. I think it was about 150000 a year then. Right. And he was described by his boss as a model employee, as well as outgoing, energetic family man. That's the way it looked. Yeah. Now, on July the 13th of 1987, the same year that her first child was born and that her husband started working at Lakeside Oil Company, Barbara wrote a reconciliation letter to Jesse in which she described being pushed, kicked, and threatened with a knife by him, Hmm. as well as his threats about throwing her out of the house and taking away her credit cards. Good Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. He could just pull the phone out of the wall. Because you know, yeah. you know, there wasn't no cell phones in. Yeah, that's when we had landlines, yeah. Everybody had a landline, yeah. And he would eventually talk about their divorce and how he could throw a knife while at her and still holding a child. 
He's a bad dude. He's a POS. Yes. This dude pisses me off. Yeah. I'm glad Dale's pissed off because when he's pissed off, he can study a little bit more and learn these cases. (laughs) Yeah, this dude's a real trash. Now, in August of 1988, uh, Jesse formed Olympic Petroleum Products Incorporated with Barbara serving as president and sole shareholder as a means to obtain minority contracts. He is a pretty smart business guy, though. I give him that. Yeah. Now, according to friends, Jesse had a strong desire to attain political office. He's all about some power, man. Yeah. And once served an appointed position on the Cedarburg Board of Appeals. And in 1988, he made an unsuccessful bid for Cedarburg Common Council. And he was also a golfer. He took karate, kickboxing, and he was a big fitness buff. Right. He was also a volunteer for different um, agencies and church activities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was well as the treasurer of the Cedarburg Lions Club. So they all up in, you know, doing the political thing, going to the church, doing everything that looks like the you're the perfect guy. You mm-hmm. know, he's got this front going that everything's just fine and dandy and they're the, the perfect power couple. Yeah, community clubs, just out doing the thing, mm-hmm. being seen. Yep. Look at me, look at me. Yep, and Barbara was also active in Big Brothers and Big Sisters organizations. So they were you know, doing the thing. Right. Now, Barbara began having difficult losing weight after her last delivery. Well, hell, she had three in a row. I mean. Yes. <laughs> she popped them out pretty quick. Yeah. And Jesse became pretty critical of this. And in January of 1992, she visited a marriage counselor. And she was talking about her husband being controlling and having an attitude and concern about her weight. Yeah, even though he told her he, he forbid her to talk to them about him yeah. during, during the counseling session. Wouldn't sessions. even mention him. Yeah, he that. wouldn't go and then forbode her to say anything. Yeah. I'm like, dude, trash. Yep. Now, Barbara reported on one instance in which uh, Jesse became upset with her when he found a candy bar wrapper. Yeah. And another in which she was at a party and asked a friend to sneak some chocolate out of the room and that Jesse was in. Yeah, bring it to another room so she could eat it without yeah. him giving her shit about it. Mm-hmm. Trash. And, and it was a close... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is trash, man. Now, a close friend of Barbara by the name of Patricia Dalton reported similar episodes and added that on more than one occasion, Jesse had tried to prevent uh, her from talking on the phone to her. Right. Just telling people that she wasn't home. Yeah. And this stuff like that. And he's like, oh, just cut it out. You know, like there's a joke or something. But he, I'm sure he wasn't joking. Yeah. He tried to cut her off and then just treat her like trash and putting all this stuff in her head and making her feel bad. And it's just mental abuse and it's bullshit. Well, we can talk about this right here, too, that he was complaining about her weight. But we did a little research on this and Barbara was five foot ten, Dale. Yeah. And a, fairly tall. Yeah. And 159 pounds. Yeah. I mean, she, it ain't like she's 400 pounds and, you know, four foot three or something. I mean, and that still wouldn't give you the right to tell her anything about that. Yeah. That just pisses me off. We're gonna, we found pictures of this these couple, and we're going to post them. And yeah, Barbara's a very beautiful lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there was a, another family friend by the name of Rosalind Dietrich. Uh, she later revealed that she was told by an acquaintance who attended meetings of advocates for battered women that Barbara also attended those meetings. Hmm. And according to the acquaintance, Dietrich did not want to reveal her name during the course of several sessions and barbara claimed to be a victim of verbal and physical abuse by which her husband would strike her in the areas of her body 
where it wouldn't show. I How, believe it. Yeah. However, it was eventually discovered that the advocate's record did not reflect the attendance of Barbara Anderson. Well, she probably didn't. She probably was using the same name, too. Could have been. She didn't. sure didn't want him to find out she's telling people what's going on. Now, there was another point where Barbara wrote a letter to Jesse in which she promised to uh, work on her weight and try to improve herself. You know, this is the case of one of these dudes who he likes to work out a lot, and he works around, thinks he's all that, and then just gives her shit whether she deserves it or not. I mm-hmm. mean, well, nobody deserves it. That ain't what I mean. I mean, as far as being a bigger lady or not, and it's just this pathetic is what it is. Yep. There, there ain't no damn, no reason that nobody ever ought to give anybody any flack about their weight. No. no. It's no sense in it. All right, now in mid-March of 1992, Barbara's parents received an unusual phone call from Jesse in which he told them his wife was being despondent and had expressed concern that she was going to die. And he indicated she was suffering from headaches and was thinking a lot about her younger brother who had died in 1983. Hmm. But when interviews by detectives on this conversation, Jesse changed his statement from the death of her younger brother to another reason. Hmm. And he decided to surprise Barbara by taking her on a second honeymoon to Jamaica. Right. But the whole time he was talking to her parents, he was saying it was about her brother. Yes. Now, they took this Jamaica vacation from March 18th to March the 21st. Right. And some information later obtained by her parents revealed that Jesse played golf every day while they were there. Yeah. And... So it was one of the most miserable trips she'd ever been on, mm-hmm. and she wasn't going to go on a trip. On and then, at one point, he was—they went to like a uh, this waterfall was pretty high. And he was having making her climb up his waterfall, even though she was slipping constantly, slipping because she was had on some shoes, like sandals or something. Yeah, and he kept getting her to make her go higher and higher. I think he was just trying to get her to damn fall, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. But you know, and then finally she just refused to go on up even though he ridiculed her for it you know so when he got back she said i'll never go with him again any trip when we go by ourselves yeah now jesse on his part claimed that while they were on the mountain barbara again made the conversation that she was afraid of dying and related this to her fear of heights sounds like to me he's just setting it up so if she was to fall then she could just blame it on she wanted to kill herself or something Mm -hmm. you know saying that that was her mental her mental thought but this dude's conniving man yeah. Barbara also complained to her friend Patricia that she was not feeling well and that she had developed a rash on her face, neck, and hands. Probably anxiety, man. Probably Eating does. Up. Yeah. Now, there was a certain point after they got back from the Jamaican trip, um, they got a little bit of financial trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though he's making all that money. Yeah. He had a approximately yearly income of $145,000 mm-hmm. from his business. But the family, they did find themselves in some kind of financial strait. And on April the 1st of 1992, Jesse refinanced the mortgage on his residence, increasing it to $161,000. Which is a lot. Yep. Now we're going to move just a little bit ahead to April the 21st of 1992. This is on a Tuesday. Okay. Now, Jesse went to work, and he remained at the office till about 10 or 10 30 that morning mm-hmm. and then bought some fishing poles at a local sporting goods store yeah. this was located on 76th street and mill road there in fiendsville yeah and he stopped at mcdonald's and then went to the cleaners and returned home and he watched the kids while barbara went to the doctor because she had had some kind of sinus infection that was going on mm-hmm. 
and then he played golf at his favorite country club, washed the car, and stopped at a drugstore. And in the afternoon hour, he was seen again at the Lakeside Oil Company office. Hmm, must and, be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heck of a work day. <laughs> yeah. Better than ours anyway. Yeah. Now, since they had been planning days in advance to go see a movie that evening, they hired a babysitter. Well, you know, if you got two or three kids and stuff going on, you have to plan that a couple, yep. couple days in advance. I get that. So at approximately 6.30 p.m., they left for the Northridge Shopping Center. Mm-hmm. This is in Milwaukee's northwest side. And in actuality, the same day, they both had confessed to their coworkers and friends that they did not want to go out on a date. And they went to the movie, and they they saw the movie City of Joy. And then they stopped for appetizers at the nearby TGI Fridays. Right. So they went to the movie at 7, and then after the movie, they went to go get something to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this was just a little past 10 p.m. A guy named Daniel Brodigam, who lived in the vicinity of TGI Fridays, heard a woman screaming, help me. Oh, my God, help me. And he rushed out to investigate when he realized the screams were coming from the parking lot of the restaurant. Uh, He entered and found Jesse and Barbara between their 1989 Volvo and a white van, bleeding from stab wounds. Mm. Barbara was underneath the van while Jesse was on his knees and leaning on his hands. And Brodigam ran to the restaurant to get help. Went back out with the assistant manager to check on him and then returned and told some employees to dial 911. Yeah, when they first come out, they didn't really realize how bad it was. And then when him and the manager come out, they realized they were both covered in blood. So that's when he went back to call 911. That's the reason he didn't call them in the first place. But just so happened there was an EMT there in the restaurant by the name of Paul Torsivia. Good. Who provided some first aid to the couple and asked Barbara if she'd been hit by the van, which she was actually responding, shaking her head no at the time. Yeah, she couldn't talk, I don't think. But Jesse was lying face down on the pavement, and all the while he asked for help. He claimed that he and his wife had been robbed and stabbed by two black individuals, and that she had been struck in the head five times. So he said this, right? Yes. Okay. Very descriptive, five times. While he'd been stabbed in the chest. My arms are numb, but I'm okay, that's what he told the EMT worker. Right. And despite some advice from the EMT, Jesse pulled the knife out of his chest. Yeah, you don't do that. Mm -mm. It was a four-inch blade. Yes, with a hook disgorger. It was like a fishing knife. Well, it was a two-bladed gimmick. One was the knife, and the other one was the hook disgorger, or whatever it's called. The hook taker router. Yeah. (laughs) Thingy Bob yeah, uh, gimmick, yeah. gimmick, yeah, yeah, and Jesse urged that the that his wife Barbara be taken care of first. Oh yeah, and he gestured to the knife and to the a black wool Los Angeles Clippers hat that was on the ground, and he claimed that the knife and hat were from the assailants. Hmm. So he just reached up and pulled it out of his chest, right? Yes, it's not not smart. Not smart at all. Now Barbara had been stabbed approximately twenty one times in the face and head with one wound penetrating her scalp and into her brain. Damn. And Jesse had been stabbed four times in the upper left chest and shoulder area. They were both hospitalized, and Barbara was placed on life support. Hmm. You think this fellow's right-handed? I do not know. 
I would say so. If he was stabbed in the upper left chest, I'm saying he's right. Yeah, it'd be hard to stab yourself in the left chest with your left hand. Yeah, because I'm I'm not buying this yet. Yep. Okay. Now, Jesse told the Milwaukee police that he and his wife were attacked while reaching their car coming from the restaurant, and the assailants were two young black males who struck without warning and without demanding anything from them. So why did he say he was being robbed? I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Now, during the course of the investigation, detectives interviewed Jesse several times on the incident. And the same night of the attack, he claimed that he heard his wife screaming, turned around, got stabbed by one of the suspects, then pushed the other one away. And the suspect's clippers hat fell off. And he was stabbed again and hearing his wife screaming. After that, he attempted to drag Barbara under the van next to the car, I guess, to get her out of the get way. Get away from the guys? Yeah. Which makes sense yeah. at that point. And at that point, the two... Took off running toward the best buy. Yeah, two assailants. Ran across the parking lot. Yes. Yeah. Now, on April the 22nd, the next day, he related that as soon as he heard his wife scream, he turned and saw that she was being stabbed by one of the suspects okay. by the back of the van. And All right. This, this is important. Yes. And at this point, he went to his wife's aid, but he was stabbed by the same individual. The same guy. Yeah. Meanwhile... Barbara went down, at which point she stopped screaming and crawled under the van while the suspect was trying to grab her. Okay, well, where's the other guy then? Don't know. Probably, <laughs> just, probably just standing there looking. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to keep up here. Yeah. Now, while after, after he was stabbed, Jesse tried to get in his car and use the car phone to get help, but fell to the ground. Then he reached his wife and pulled her under the van. Okay, so he can't push a button on the phone, but he can... Crawl around the ground and pull under the van. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, the next day on April the 23rd, he confirmed his later version, but omitted the part where he tried to get in the car. Now, on April the 25th, a couple days later, Jesse contradicted himself when he claimed that his wife kept screaming while he was crawling under the van. He also claimed that the man with the knife fled soon after he fell to his knees from the stab wounds. He added that he got stabbed he opened the right front door of his car to unlock the rear door, get the cell phone, and call for help. But he became weak before he could hmm. and decided to yell for help instead. <laughs> now, finally, oh, damn. yeah, finally, he added that he fell down onto the pavement, reached his wife under the van, and attempted to move and shake her. She did not talk to him, but moaned and shook her head. Now, according to Jesse, the suspects were in their early 20s, but the one who stabbed both of them and his wife was about 6 feet 1 inches tall, slim build, 170 to 180 pounds, wearing a dark length hoodie. It was like a, similar to a parka. Dark pants, black high-top tennis shoes, and that L.A. Clippers cap that we mentioned. Yeah, he had it on backwards in a way that it would indicate gang affiliation, according Which, to him. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. That's a lot of damn details to get when it's 1030 at night in the dark and you're fighting off two guys with knives. Yeah. You know, when you're stabbing your wife and you go to help and he stabs you and you go down and you're so weak you can't push a button on the phone, but you can remember all this. Getting attacked from behind. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now. So, just stating facts. <laughs> yeah. He also stated that he had a medium complexion, had hair that was really short on the sides and back, but longer on the top, and had a thin mustache. And as for the other suspect, he described him as thin build, 
smaller than the other and wearing dark clothing but was unable to give any kind of details. Mm-hmm. Brenda Newman, who lived in the same building as Daniel Brodigam, this is the guy that heard they originally heard the screams and went for help, claimed that she heard a woman screaming, help me, help me, at approximately 10, 10 to 10, 15 p.m. Okay. And when she looked out the window, she witnessed a woman being chased by two dark clothed African-Americans near a white van in the parking lot. And according to her, several people who were leaving the restaurant witnessed the scene and did nothing. She also witnessed Daniel Brodigman running towards the TGI Fridays. And minutes later, after she had woken up her boyfriend, Brenda Newman saw the same individuals running toward two separate cars in the general direction of the Andersons. Hmm. But she failed to describe the woman and her hair or clothing. But now get this, Dale. No one else saw the attack. Right. Police were unable to lift fingerprints from both the knife recovered at the scene and the blood-stained key found in the Volvo's passenger side lock. Right. Now, when confronted with the letter found in Barbara's purse, yeah. Jesse denied that he and Barbara had any kind of marital problems. He said they were fine. Yeah, when they found out later, they're like, well, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. You know, and also it helps, you know, to get rid of some fingerprints if you grab the knife and stick it in your chest and pull it out yourself and can take all the fingerprints off of it yeah they weren't there it's kind of crazy he'd <laughs> stab himself and pull a knife out mm-hmm. yeah now it did go in enough to to uh, puncture a lung so actually his lung collapsed from it right so i mean it's kind of like the, the scream guy you know yeah it's a little deep yep okay all right now on april the 23rd barbara anderson was removed from life support at the request of jesse anderson request he demanded yeah pretty yeah. much yeah they basically went in and told him you know she was brain dead so he said take her off right now and then i don't want her off and if any of the doctors want to do anything about it i'll kick their ass mm-hmm. so he was pretty much demanding it i mean it wasn't like let's give it a day and see what happens because you know they told they told him it wasn't you know she, she wasn't going to recover but i mean you could wait till the family came in or something yeah you know? get, I mean, it's pretty get some time with her yeah but he was demanding right off the bat to take her off just a, you know, about a day later, I think it was, that they took the tube out of his chest and he was up and walking around. So, Yeah. But he, he didn't get any kind of wounds like she did, man. No. Mm-mm. Now, the investigation on the attack was initially slowed, and this was by rumors of a confession, and the police were focusing on someone who knew Barbara rather than black males. Mm. By April the 24th, these rumors grew into false reports that Jesse had been arrested for the death of his wife. Right, which they, was false. He had yeah. been, yeah. And meanwhile, the North Shore Crime Stoppers offered $2,000 for information leading to the arrest and uh, charging of suspects in the case. Now, between April the 24th and April 25th, the Anderson's car and home were searched. The search at the home turned out, among other things, another letter written by Barbara. And on April the 25th, Jesse left the hospital in an unmarked squad car, which brought him to the police administration building. Right. Where he was in, where interviewed he, again. Yeah. yeah. Now, on April the 26th, the police chief announced at a news conference that Jesse Anderson had been arrested the afternoon before and that he was being held on suspicion of killing his wife. Right. Yeah. They, I think they actually told him they wanted him to come back down and look at some more photos. And when he got down there, they went ahead and arrested him. So this time it was for real. Yes. Yeah. And it was later revealed that within hours of the stabbing, investigators split over the veracity of Jesse's story of the attack on him and his wife by two strangers. Mm-hmm. 
they were just inconsistencies between his account and evidence included the fact that he only had minor scrapes and cuts including one below his left index finger while barbara had received defensive wounds yeah, all on her hands and her uh, forearms and everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Like blocking knife blows. Yeah. She was fighting for her life, and he's, he's just got a little smidge. <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> no, he, Nothing, really. But he had received four stab wounds and a small grouping over his chest, one which uh, we mentioned punctured his lung, but none were considered life-threatening. So they're basically all in the same place. Yeah, pretty mm-hmm. much, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, his wounds were largely just superficial, and two of them were like – Hesitation wounds. Yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. While Barbara had been brutally stabbed multiple times in the face head with some force, which... Well, enough to go through her skull. Yeah. I mean, with a damn pocket knife. Mm-hmm. And we looked at this knife. It's not like a big Rambo knife. It's a folding knife. Yeah, you know, just a so. little fishing knife, yeah. Yeah. Four-inch blade. Now, while he was being interviewed, Jesse was questioned as to how his wife could have been stabbed so many times in a brief period of time between hearing her scream and running to her aid. Yeah. And he stated he could not give any answers to that question. Yeah, I don't know. And he never <laughs> he never asked investigators to find the killers of his wife. Mm. And the fact that the assailants made no demand for money or said anything before the stabbing, as well as the fact that Barbara's purse, her two silver rings, she had a gold watch. Yeah, he had his wallet yet and all his money. He had like 100 bucks cash in his wallet and gold chains. Everything was there. Yeah. Nothing was gone. So for him to claim that it was a, a robbery gone wrong is just bullshit. Yeah, it was poorly done if that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, why would you come in there and stab a heck out of this woman and try to kill him and then not take nothing? I know. For no reason. It's just nothing, nothing adds up here. You know, even though people said that even that when he was in the hospital – that when people come to see him, you know, he just wasn't really depressed or sad or anything. And he was more, he was worried about a golf trip that was coming up in about a week and then trying to find some people to, to watch his kids. Yeah. You know, like a nanny or something, long-term care and this kind of stuff instead of mourning over his wife. So he didn't even act like, you know, it, it bothered him that much. Mm-mm. So definitely something going on. Now on April the 22nd, an anonymous caller reported that his mother had witnessed the sale of a cap similar to the one left at the crime scene. This was the L.A. Clippers hat. Right. And according to the caller, the sale occurred at Northridge Mall at about lunchtime on April the 21st. A black male had approached an African-American couple who were filling out employment applications and offered to pay $20 to buy the hat from them. That very same night, there was an 18-year-old art student named Tommy Miles, and he came forward claiming that he was the one who sold the hat. And the buyer, which, contrary to what was originally reported, was white. Mm. And he approached him and his girlfriend, who was Wanda Jackson, and he had a different story, Dale. Right. He was looking for a job, too, and an interviewer at a store was testing him by sending him into the mall to buy something from a stranger. Yeah, that's what all job interviewers do. Yeah. Now, later, Tommy Miles saw the cap on a television news report, and he identified it by a motor oil stain on the inside of it. Yeah. He told him he'd, when he first bought it, he'd dropped it in a little pile of oil. Yeah, and it was exactly the, where it was, where he said it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Tommy also described him as being in his early 40s, 5'9 to 5'10. Yeah, he's describing the buyer. Yes. Yeah. As 140 pounds, balding in front with brown mustache, wearing a beige jacket, 
prescription glasses to. Hmm. And the Anderson's babysitter confirmed that she saw Jesse wearing the prescription glasses. And when showed a photo, Tommy Miles picked up Anderson as the man who mostly resembled the buyer of the cap. And later he failed to pick him out of a lineup, but claimed the man in Anderson's spot in the lineup was the one who resembled the buyer the most. Now, Wanda Jackson did the exact opposite. She picked Anderson out of the lineup, but not the, out of the photo array. Hmm. Now, there was a mall employee, Dale. His name was Dennis Schmutzler. Okay. I guess I butchered that name. If you say so. Yeah, Schmutzler. <laughs> he also witnessed the sale of this cap, and he described the buyer as a white male, late 30s to early 40s, 5 foot 11 to 6 foot, slim build with a big chest, 140 to 150 pounds. Short grayish black hair on the sides, balding on top, with a light tan. Wearing beige dress pants, a beige sports coat, white shirt, brown or black shoes with no glasses. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Somebody's paying attention here. Now, when showed a photo array, he identified Jesse Anderson as the buyer. He picked him out. Right. So this dude that looks like Jesse Anderson a lot walks into the food court in a mall and walks up to a guy who's filling out applications at a table. Yep. And offers him $20 for the hat off his head. Yep. The black guy. With a, trying to buy the hat off the black guy. So, hmm. And uh, I think uh, Tommy had said, hell, he didn't give him $14 for the hat when he bought it new, so he definitely sold it to him. For 20 bucks, yeah. And then they, they came and his girlfriend went and got lunch off with the extra money he made. But this is, uh, this is a long way to go to set somebody up, man. That's yeah. the way it looks to me. If you're going to do this, why would you do it in front of all these witnesses? Exactly. Yeah, Jesse's not too bright, dude. Well, he is and he ain't. He's yeah. trying to, he, he's, he thinks he's smarter than everybody else is what the thing is here. But he ain't. Now, on April the 26th, Dennis Lieberg related to police detectives that on March the 29th, he had witnessed a similar occurrence. He was at Northridge Shopping Center with his wife, and he witnessed a white male fitting the general description of Jesse Anderson approaching a couple of uh, young African-American boys, one of them wearing an L.A. Clippers cap, and the white male offered to buy it for 25 to $35. Hmm. And Lieberg added that when he saw a photograph of Jesse Anderson in the newspaper, he thought he resembled the white male at Northridge. So he tried to buy it from somebody else first? Yeah. What this guy's saying? Seems like it, yeah. Hmm. So there's a lot of people that's uh, seeing Jesse there at the mall. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, Dale. There was another witness that came forward. His name was James DeShazer. He was an owner of a military surplus store. And he claimed that his clerk, Ora Ronkowski, sold the knife used in the stabbing a month earlier. Yeah, they said that uh, basically this particular knife was only available in two different stores in the in this area or something. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't probably not hard to track this down. And this uh, Ora Ronkowski picked Jesse Anderson out of a lineup as the buyer. Mm-hmm. And police learned from the knife's distributor that the store was the only one in the Milwaukee area. That sold it. Oh, shit. Yeah, and according so to... So there's only one in Yeah, and according to DeShazer, he had sold only one of these knives that he had stocked. Yeah, I think he went in and when the guy come in, to whoever the guy was, it probably really resembled Jesse Anderson. He was looking at a different knife, or he tried to sell him a different knife when he was looking for a fishing knife, but he didn't want that one. He wanted one that had more of a point, and that's yeah. when they sold him this one. But DeShazer was able to recover the seat 
for 1895 the exact amount of the knife hmm. issued on April the 2nd of 1992. Right. Now, investigators also discovered that in early April of 1991, the Andersons had applied for a $250,000 life insurance policy for Barbara. So it's the previous year. Yes. Okay. Now, Jesse claimed that he knew about the policy, but denied that he had any knowledge of the amount until he checked on April the 24th of 92 mm-hmm. yeah i think he when they asked him the first if they had him he, he just said no and then it's like well what about this and like, oh and he act all surprised like mm-hmm. she had taken it out by herself or something all right now april the 27th police requested the intervention of the fbi's behavioral science unit for an assessment of the crime scene as to the possibility of it being staged or false allegations against anderson that was set up by anderson to cover up uh, barbara's death right now, they observed staging elements and set forth the nature of false allegations made by Anderson. And the same day, Jesse was allowed to pay his respects to his wife before the funeral. Yeah, I think they were hoping he would just break down if he got to see her. Yeah, he had, they took him to the funeral home in handcuffs. In handcuffs, yeah. yeah. But the same day, Jesse was allowed to pay his respects to Barbara before the funeral. And it was later revealed that was part of a ploy by the police to see like Dale said mm-hmm. any reaction or to get a confession well you know and then basically he just walks up and he's like honey I'm sorry I'm sorry I love you I love you and all this emotion and he just tried to be very emotional though he couldn't shed a tear no Mm-mm. then he said basically he wasn't feeling well in which he had to go back to the restroom and then I think they took him back to jail after that didn't they yeah they did mm-hmm. now on April the 28th Prosecutors charged Jesse Anderson with first-degree intentional homicide, which carried a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. The assistant district attorney, Carol L. White, claimed the defendant was a flight risk and requested and obtained $500,000 bail. And on April 29th, Jesse Anderson was also ordered to surrender his passport. Now, on May 18th, Jesse Anderson pleaded not guilty at the arraignment and Dennis P. Coffey, the attorney for Anderson, filed a motion to dismiss arguing violation of his client's due process rights caused by the delay in holding the preliminary hearing. Hmm. The motion was denied, and Coffey also demanded a change of venue, arguing investigators' comments to the news media. Now, request was denied on August the 3rd, and jury selection began the same day. Wow, man, that's fast. Yeah. The prosecution case was that Jesse premeditated the murder of his wife whom he had previously abused and with whom he wasn't getting along oh yeah well i mean you know they got those letters just telling everything and then this bogus robbery mm-hmm. so they got a pretty good bit of stuff on this guy and in, the insurance money was also suggested as a motive right that he didn't know about yeah now on august the 13th jesse anderson who declined to testify during the trial was found guilty by an all-white jury after nine hours of deliberation the trial lasted eight days. On September the 29th, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole until 2052. At his sentencing hearing, Jesse Anderson lamented that he had been treated unfairly by the judge and jurors who he claimed were biased due to excessive publicity. He also vowed to continue pursuing the assailants that he contended killed his wife. Judge Michael D. Goulet responded to Jesse's denial of guilt by saying that he should have been on his knees praying to God for forgiveness, that he could see no remorse for true feelings in him, that he had preyed upon fear and racism, and the court would not have allowed him to ever be on the streets again. 
Well, I mean, they had him dead to rights, really, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, he claimed it. He definitely did not get into the car. You know, he had opened the front passenger door to get the cell phone out, but was too weak to make the call and fell back to the ground. But then, you know, then he changed it. But the fact that the blood matching Anderson was, was found on the, the rear passenger side door in the back of the front passenger seat and on the rear floor mat. So blood matching his wife was found on the sleeves of his sport coat that he was wearing that night. You know, and then yeah. if they found... uh human and animal hair in that hat in the when they checked the hair the hair the hair um the human hair did it indeed match tommy miles but the other hair matches the anderson's dog so they had him there too because of the hair was also found in the car yeah so they knew that basically when he opened it and said he was getting a cell phone i think he was opening the car to get the hat to throw the hat out to make it look like somebody dropped their hat exactly so they knew all this stuff, so that he was basically dead to rights as far as I'm concerned. Can you imagine this Tommy Miles, if he hadn't saw that on the news and they found that hair and tested that? Yeah, if it didn't have the dog hair on it and all they found was his DNA. Yeah. Yeah, he'd been set up. He'd been screwed, man. And if you see a picture of him, it is kind of like he was describing, you know, the uh, tall, slim guy with the more hair on the top and you know, thin mustache and all that. Yeah. I think he was just, uh, when he was using all those descriptive terms, when he, he said, what were the guys wearing? That's probably what he had on the day that he bought the hat. Very possible. Yeah. And two, there was a lot of, at this time, Dale, there was a lot of racial tensions going on in the U.S. Oh, yeah. You know, was the Rodney King thing had just happened. and There was a lot of racial turmoil going on. Yes, and I think he played that, too. Yeah. I think, too. Definitely. Yep. All right. Now, Jesse Anderson began serving his life sentence at the Columbia Correctional Institute. This is a maximum security prison located in Portage, Wisconsin. Right. And there he worked in education, corps, tutoring other inmates on computers, and in the recreation department. Right. Now, in early 1993, a $2 million worth of wrongful death suits was filed by Jesse Anderson on behalf of his children to keep him from profiting from his crimes. And the suit was postponed until 1995. And in August of 1993, a court ruling terminated Anderson's rights to manage and control his household assets. Meanwhile, his attorney asked that he be allowed to withdraw from representing him. <laughs> so he's getting the hell out, too. Yes. Now, on April the 21st of 1994, the second anniversary of his wife's murder, Jesse Anderson was ordered to spend five days, Dale, mm-hmm. in solitary confinement, followed by another 180 days without recreation. And this was for defacing a fellow inmate's portrait of Martin Luther King, Jr., this was an attempt to frame another prisoner he disliked. Mm, this is a gimmick, ain't it? Yeah. Now, a spokesperson for the Wisconsin Department of Corrections noted this irony. That's what he did in his crime, wasn't it? Setting up others and blaming others. Yeah, set it up and blame somebody else. Yep. Yeah, I think he drew a bullet or something on the on the portrait. Yeah. And then they later, he said he didn't do it, but then they later found a marker in his tail. So yeah, it matched the marker he had. Yeah, knew he did it. On the morning of November the 28th, Jesse Anderson and another fellow inmate, Christopher Scarver, were led to the bathrooms in the prison's gymnasium by the correction officers, who left them unattended. Now, according to this other inmate, Scarver, he was in there with Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm -hmm. Now, according to Scarver, Dahmer and Anderson poked him in the back 
with a lot, I think a mop handle or something and laughed at him. Yeah, I think uh, they were getting ready to, they went in there and the first thing they had to do was mop up the floors. So they grabbed their mops and filled up their buckets and one of them poked him in the back with one of the, it was either a broom handle or a mop handle. And when he turned around, both of them just kind of giggled. Mm-hmm. So he didn't know which one did it. Even though he looked them in the eye, he couldn't figure out which one did it. So that's that's what caused that. And they were just giggling at him and stuff. Yep. So then they all split off and went into uh, two different bathrooms. I think uh, Anderson went in one bathroom. Dahmer went into another bathroom. Yeah. And uh, Scarver was left in the main room there. Yeah, in there with Dahmer. And this was uh, when he confronted Jeffrey Dahmer with a newspaper article detailing his crimes and asked him if he did those things. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he brutally bludgeoned him in the head with that steel rod. Yeah, I think he took a steel bar. I think it was like a... From a weight? Yeah, I think it was a dumbbell that you can take the weights off. Mm-hmm. You know, the dumbbell bar is about 20 inches long, I think it was. Yeah. Just steel bar. Yeah, it wasn't like a bench press bar, but just a short one, 20 inch or so. Yeah. And then after he smashed Dahmer in the head, he did the same thing to Jesse Anderson. Right. Jeffrey Dahmer died of massive head injuries the very same day while Jesse Anderson was transferred in very serious condition to Divine Savior Hospital of Portage to the University of Wisconsin Hospital. Yeah, Scarver was all pissed off, you know. He had went and found out what all Dahmer did because Dahmer was kind of, he was acting a little, mm, uh, like he had a lot of fans, you know. He was just kind of putting in everybody's face and stuff. So he's like went to find out what's going on, and he read all that stuff, and it just blew his mind. And then he knew that Anderson had also blamed his wife's murder on two black guys. So this really fired Scarver up, too. So, yeah. And, and Scarver had some problems anyway, but he had had, had faced a lot of racial t- uh, stuff in his life, too. So he was just he was just ready to blow, I think, at this point. Yep. And as for Jesse Anderson— Scarver murdered him because, in the eyes of Christopher Scarver, he was racist. Yeah. He had defaced a portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. and tried to pin the murder of mm-hmm. his wife on two black men. Exactly. Yep. And Christopher Scarver added that he believed it was no accident that he ended up alone with Dahmer. I don't think it was either. Mm-mm. Since the prison officials knew he hated him and they wanted him dead. Yeah, nobody liked Dahmer in there. Mm-mm. You know, none of the inmates, no, I don't even think none of the guards, just because he was such a celebrity. But there was an investigation following the killings, and it determined that Scarver acted alone. Oh, I'm sure. They probably investigated it themselves. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I just don't think... It was also said that, you know, hardly ever did the guards leave, you know, let them in there and be, them be alone. You know, because even when Dahmer was put into general population, he had a, a specific guard assigned to him at all times. So he wasn't like he was in gym pop. Like everybody else, he did have somebody with him, especially after that time when he got slashed in the neck, you know. Mm-hmm. After that, he always had a guard with him. And then at this time, they took them all three in there and let them go, and then the guard just left. Yeah. And then it was like 20 minutes later, um, Scarver showed back, back to his uh, to his cell. He's like, well, why aren't you not working? He goes, well, I guess you'll find out, and you'll hear about it on the 6 o'clock news. God told me to do it. Wow. So he went in there and killed them both. Yeah. Bloods them to death. I mean, he really took them out. Yeah. After the death of Barbara Anderson, her brother Kevin Lynch founded Bella Charities. Bella is standing for Barbara Ellen Lynch Associates as a nonprofit group to help victims of domestic abuse. I'm glad uh, they wrote that out because I was thinking it would be for uh, Barbara Ellen Lynch Anderson. And so I'm glad Associates is definitely what the A is for because I yep. would like I would have dropped that off. Yeah. So that's that's pretty dang cool. Yeah. Now, Tommy Miles, the guy who originally owned the L.A. Clippers hat 
and his girlfriend Wanda Jackson and Jim DeShazer. This was he was the uh, store owner of the the where he got the knife. Mm-hmm. They did not receive the reward money offered by Crime Stoppers since they had not contacted. Didn't contact any anonymous type tip line. Yeah, they, the so they, they didn't get any money. What the hell? Yeah, that is the story of Jesse and Barbara Anderson. Yeah, man. So yeah. he got what he deserved. Yeah, that's me. It is a piece of shit, man. I totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. But we want to do this case because the Dahmer episode is popular on Netflix right now, mm-hmm. and this just sort of gives another what happened there. Yeah, why Jesse Anderson was there in prison and why he was with. Dahmer at the time and basically tell Barbara's story because it's one you don't know about. Yeah. And when I first heard this story, you know, I was like, you know, he's Jesse Anderson. But then it's a. Uh, Pretty shocking. Very, very shocking. Yeah. But yeah. He's, he's basically the other guy. Yeah. If you think about it. Mm-hmm. When, the, when they all went down, he was just, it was Dahmer, 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 and this other guy. Yeah, pretty much. Mm hmm. All right, Dale. We are going to get out of here, dude. All right, let's roll. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is The The Crack Crack House House Chronicles. Chronicles.